quintessential podcast welcomes in a trio of esteemed guests. I mean, we got Paul Carcaterra and Chris Cotter, announcers for ESPN, and Ryan Hoff, producer, former Notre Dame sharpshooter and goal scorer. Guys, I, I want to, first of all, you got action this week, Thursday night. We got Duke and Virginia, a critical game. You guys are going to be calling that game. And then on Saturday, Notre Dame at North Carolina as well. Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, I'll just uh, open up as, as a free-for-all. It's good to have Hoff on. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hoff, Hoff. is relevant again. He's relevant <laughs> again. Do you, know, do you know Ryan Hoff had a record for the most goals in Notre Dame history in a single game that was just broken by Jake Taylor a couple weeks ago against Syracuse? Taylor had eight. Ryan Hoff's record was seven. He shared that with Matt Cavanaugh and Randy Colley. So, we have a goal-scoring extraordinaire on your podcast today, Clint. we got to be nice to Hoff because he's, he's a producer right now, and he's going to be our boss within five years. Well, that's not true, but I will say this. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't expect to be relevant again on the lacrosse field. You know, Mikey Wynn kept me relevant for a long time. He was a great goal scorer at Notre Dame. So anytime he was scoring, you know, I would occasionally get brought up, but uh, – really imp impressed with the Jake Taylor kid. Um, you know, it's just, it's the subtle movements off ball. It's, it's the confidence. Uh, I know I, we had a quick conversation after the game, but his ability to, you know, not only get open, but, you know, to have the confidence coming in, you know, having never been on the field really and, and canning shots and high pressure moments, that's, that's difficult. You know, it's, you know, it's easy to be a crease guy until it's not right. So, you know, he's, he's moving around on the crease. Every time you catch the ball inside, you're supposed to score. So when you don't, People, uh, people get upset and uh, he was able to can pretty much all of them. And then, you know, two goal, two assist performance in his second game is, is pretty impressive. So excited to see how he continues to open the, up the offense for Notre Dame. Ryan, Ryan, what's what the strangest part of the whole thing is not even that he had that big of a day. It's that he hadn't played much at all, if at all, the whole season before that. I mean, the Irish have been looking for a crease attack. They've been trying different guys out and no one was working. You know, York was fantastic there last year, and Kavanaugh was great with him, but then he moves on, and you're trying Westland, and you're trying Ricciardelli, and nothing seems to be working. And then all of a sudden, you put this guy in, and he works spectacularly. Where's he been all year? I know that your, that question, I, I've been asking it as well. You know, my, my assumption is I know he's been coming off an injury. Um, you know, I, I'm sure he's one of those guys that it's just been kind of a, you know, a slow build back, but I'm sure he's been impressing in practice and, you know, they made the conscious decision to start him. So it was obviously something they had been seeing over the last few weeks. And, uh, the, you know, we saw the chemistry in that, you know, between him and the Kavanaugh's and how he kind of opens everything up for those guys, uh, and just for the offense in general. So I'm sure he had been starting to get reps and, you know, sometimes it just, take something to pull the trigger and, and, you know, there had been some struggles. So I think they finally decided to pull the trigger on something that I assume they had been watching uh, in practice and, and just kind of seeing him, you know, perform in practice. You know, it's amazing that the flow of the season seems to have changed here, guys. Like we start so early now in February, it's the middle of April. There's three more weeks of the regular season and, the, and then championship week with, with league championship tournaments on that first Saturday and Sunday in, in May. Uh, but a team like Notre Dame, Certainly they're four and four, but I, I get the gut feeling that they're actually starting to come into their best lacrosse. Is, is that what you guys are saying? Yes. Yes. Unequivocally. I'm, I'm stupid a lot of the time and I don't really have a, you know, great projections all the time, but Hoff will attest to this and a couple other people like Notre Dame was a team. I, I never counted out. 
if you look at their losses, right? They lost to Maryland, Georgetown, right? They lost to Virginia. I mean, th- those are those are three of their their losses. So and Ohio this, State, and again, and, the Buckeyes and, scored five extra man goals in. Yes, and Ohio State. So those are the four losses. But I, I mentioned the first three because I want to put them in a different category. You could argue that those are the three most talented teams in the country, right? Would you be – is that safe to say? You could argue that? Virginia, Georgetown, Maryland, the three most yeah. talented oh, yeah. teams. Yeah. yeah, so they lost the three most talented teams, and they were – they were exposed uh, against Ohio state in terms of Ohio state's extra man offense that day. I just felt like a team with that kind of talent, with that kind of a defensive system that was shooting that poorly, if they figured a way to hit the cage, things would be drastically different. Because if you turn on the tape, they were getting good looks. It's not like they were throwing ill-advised shots at goalies. They, They just weren't hitting the cage. And when Jake Taylor was injected into the offense, he's a kid that I saw play in high school. He has phenomenal hands. He's got backhand shots behind the back through the legs kind of stuff. And and when he takes these shots, these aren't the type of shots you're like showboat showboat. No, they're they're the right shot at the right time. He just can do it. But outside of his finishing ability and hands, he occupies a spot on the field now that people have to protect the paint when they play Notre Dame. So if you look at guys like Wheaton, Jack of Boyce and, and, and Eric Dobson, they're getting better one-on-one opportunities to can their shots. I mean, Jack of Boyce, I think was, I think he was perfect shooting last week. Yeah. I three mean, for three. It's three for three. three. Huge, huge turnaround. Yeah. Huge turnaround. So I, I think Jake Taylor, outside of just scoring goals, what he does in terms of occupying the paint just lets the rest of the offense be themselves. Like, and it brings out the best in Pat Cavanaugh. Like Pat Cavanaugh last year broke the record for assists in a season at Notre Dame. He's a facilitator. Yes, he does a lot of dramatic things off the dodge and he could score goals, but at, at its root, Notre Dame's best when Cavanaugh's dealing. Yeah. Fans want to know, Cotter, fans want to know what you're going to do on Friday, Tobacco Road. You got the game Thursday, you got another game Saturday. The, 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 here's the interesting thing about that. You know, I have shoulder surgery coming up next week, right? So I told Clark and Hoff, I was like, I'm trying to get in the heaviest workouts now because I'm going to have to go like six weeks without working out. So I'm going extra hard. So Clark and I were like, should we work out at the lacrosse facility? Because North Carolina, we got Carolina on Saturday. We got Duke Thursday, Carolina Saturday. So we'll go there and we'll – the Carolina lacrosse facility is great, but then there's the football facility too which is phenomenal that Mac Brown has put together. So I'm debating whether I'm going to go and, and work out at the lacrosse facility or the football facility, but it'll be one of the two. That's, that's a guarantee. Hey Q, this is what you have to be dealing with in May. Cotter potentially, I think his potential, the right word, Cotter getting shoulder surgery. No, it's definitely what? happening. A week. From okay. Today. It's definitely, do you understand how salty this guy is going to be in the uh, month of May? Just pray, pray that you're not in assignment with him because this guy is going to be miserable when he doesn't eat and he doesn't lift. He is like the worst human to be around. It's, it's all about brain chemistry. It's all, it's, it's all about, it's all about endorphins, uh, dopamine, right. and, and, and he's going to be in a bad place. Oh. He's going to be in a bad place. How about this for what I'm going to have, to, I'm going to have to do just to keep those endorphins going. I'm going to have to do cardio. Over oh, the next wow. I'm going to have to. Hey, maybe oh. if you hit the treadmill, your, your calves will grow. 
nothing will make those calves grow. You know, you know, I have plantar fasciitis from doing so many calf raises uh, on those calves and nothing works. Hoff, how have you stayed in shape now with the young family? No, it's, it's the, it's because of the young family. It's the 14 month old. I'm just chasing him around all the time, you know, like he's, he's running all over the place. We went over to our the neighbor's gates house. In the back. You have the gates in the back. I remember those days. Remember that Q? Oh, we the gates. We got, we got baby gates everywhere. You know, the whole house is like, you know, every room is his room now, you know, so it's, it's not like, oh, we've got a playroom. We've got four playrooms because every room in the house has turned into a playroom. So no, it's great, man. We're, we, we just go for walks with the family and then he'll, you know, he's walking now. So he's been walking for about three months or so. So just chasing him around. I mean, he's every time, you know, you guys know what it's like. Anytime there's something he shouldn't get into, that's where immediately he goes. So he's always walking to the stairs so he can climb up the stairs. And, you know, so it's, it's a nonstop chasing, uh, chasing uh, world I'm living in. I'm at How much are you on the road right now, huh? How much are you on the road, Hoff? Uh, so in the, in the fall, I'm, I'm working Monday night football. So, you know, that's pretty much six months straight of, you know, being gone, you know, half the week, as you guys know, from doing some football stuff. And then you fly, you fly, uh, you fly Thursdays for that or, or Wednesday. Evening? So, so we, we fly Saturdays, um, which is, it's, it's not bad. We fly Saturday. It's pr pretty similar to college football where, you know, college football, you fly out Thursday for a Saturday game. We fly out Saturday for the uh, Monday game and then fly back Tuesday. Um, and then with, uh, Right now I'm on NFL draft. So I've, I've gotten away. I've helped out with some women's frozen four and men's frozen four um, the last few weekends. But other than that, I'm just at home preparing. Um, I'll be gone in about, you know, after our game this Thursday, uh, a week later, I'll go out for NFL draft. So that's such a great thing about ESPN. There's so many events going on. I mean, it isn't just like, like college events too. Like you talk about frozen four and lacrosse and I'm doing college baseball in the spring. There's always so much stuff. I'm wondering, like, I did the Pitt spring game this past uh, Saturday. It, was, it wasn't even live on linear TV. It was ACC Network Plus, and then it was delayed. Like, the control room was, like, in the back of a, of a conversion van, you know, and there were, like, like, three dudes working back there. Like, when you go to Monday Night Football, it's, how, many, how many employees are working a Monday Night Football game? It's got to be hundreds in, like, several trucks, right? Yeah, it's definitely in the hundreds. I mean, you add up the cameras, um, you add up the people back in Bristol. You know, a lot of our team stays back in Bristol. Uh, that might be something I actually do next year to, to be around the family a little bit more. But uh, yeah, some of our teams in Bristol, some's out on the road. Um, but yeah, you're looking at, you know, 30 plus game cameras for just a standard game, um, you know, and, and then you have, you know, you have the camera operators, you have the EVS operators that are rolling back the replays for all of those. Uh, um, you know, we have uh, about, you know, between Monday night football and Monday night countdown, there's four to five trucks out there. So, you know, we, it's a little different than, you know, like you said, I, I've worked on those small broadcasts where you're in a little, you know, tiny little van basically that's converted into a truck. Uh, it, it's different. It's, it's a beast, but honestly, the draft NFL draft is the biggest, you know, outside of going to a national championship, NFL drafts, the biggest compound I've been to because there's an ESPN show, there's an ABC show, it, it, you know, it's, it's also on other networks. Um, but so those compounds get huge, but, but, you know, they also use the same trucks as Monday night football. They just end up adding more to it, but what, it, what's it, your it just, role? Ryan, what's your role on, on the draft? You, you compiling, uh, packages, you, you dealing with, uh, remote shoots with reporters at, at, yeah. at, uh, at team sites. Like, so I've actually, I've been the graphics producer for the last four years on the ESPN side. So it's really, 
you know, there's just a lot of content, a lot of information. You know, you think about how many players get drafted, but you multiply that by, you know, four or five, six, because we don't know who's going to, you know, sometimes there's, you know, Bill Belichick, you know, has been watching somebody that nobody's been watching, right? So, yeah, South Duluth State. (laughs) Exactly. So we, we prepare for just in our, like, you know, our matrix system, which is that kind of the, not the ticker, but the lower third ticker that's kind of going throughout the entire draft. We prepare, and that's what releases picks and everything. We've been, we prepare for about a thousand players there. And then uh, graphically, you know, with full screens and lower thirds, we're preparing for, you know, definitely probably a hundred, maybe 150 players each. And, you know, they have multiple graphics and, and, and then we create a lot of, you know, custom and, um, you know, specialty elements as well, which I oversee. So it's, it's a lot of content. Um, You know, this will likely be my last year on the project. Hey, (laughs) you talk about graphics and preparing for, for players. You going to build a graphic for uh, Jared Bernhardt and the Kai Montgomery potentially. What, What do you got there? Oh, there we go. We might, you know, we might, I can't, I can't uh, have any, uh, can't release any surprise information, but uh, maybe there's highlights. Maybe there's graphics. Are you worried about Bernhardt's slow time? Cause that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. I mean, you know, he's, he's a gamer, like some, he's like a Belichick kind of guy. Cause he's a gamer, but his, his numbers don't really add up to be a receiver or yeah, four, seven. You know what right? I mean? he, he ran a four, seven. Yeah. Like four, seven. So it's kind of like, I mean, I guess he could be, uh, just like like football player, like some coaches want a football player that they could have return kicks, could play maybe some you know in the slot a little bit, uh, just as a hands guy. Yeah, we what we were just talking about Kyle Hamilton's forty time not being as as good as you know everyone expected it to be, and you know, but it, it depends on what you do on the field, how fast are you on the field, how, you know. Yeah. So it really comes down to how they evaluate and and what you know what GMs and coaches are thinking of Jerry you know, Rice had a bad 40 time. Like Jerry Rice had a bad 40 yeah. time. That's why he slid all the way down and Bill Walsh. Did like, you ever see me? anyone catch him from behind? Right. No, no one caught him. What do you think Q? I mean, you, you know, you know, the family well too. I like, I, I know those guys as, as well, but I just, he's the type of kid I just wouldn't bet against. No, I, w- I wouldn't bet against him. The interesting thing is, you know, he, he, he played that extra year of football. He led his team to a, a national championship by p- playing option quarterback. That's not what he's going to be in the NFL. So, you know, he pursued this dream. If the NFL was the end goal, he would have gone somewhere and played slot receiver or safety. Right. Yeah. Uh, so now he's got Now he's got to like make another transition. So it was lacrosse to quarterback. Now it's quarterback to receiver. So that, it, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. I, there's no reason for me to believe that he won't be signed as an undrafted free agent, brought into a camp, and put put on a practice squad for a year or two to see to see how he develops. Yeah, I actually spoke to a uh, a uh, a member of a of a football organization who who has a lot of pull um, in in their uh, draft department, and he thought that Bernhardt playing quarterback was actually a good thing because he felt like if he went somewhere and tried to catch on as a wide receiver his athleticism and his impact as a football player wouldn't have popped as much Mm -hmm. so by him playing as an option quarterback they they saw his athleticism and his ability to make football plays and he has way more tape to dissect to make a transition does that make any sense because he was was such an impactful player on the team no, I, I, you watch the highlights. It's it's uh, mind blowing. If you said that guy runs a four seven, I said no way. He runs a four seven. He's, he's 
turning corners and pulling away on guys and, and hitting them with, with, you know, with split moves. Uh, it was just, 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 just amazing. So smooth in his cuts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, while we're on the topic of Maryland guys, uh, they seem to be like, have risen to the top here. Hoff was, was there a team when you were playing that was uh, head and shoulders or viewed to be that much better than the rest of the competition? My freshman year is certainly Virginia. Um, you know, that was 06. So that was the team that, I mean, at every position, I think they had the midfielder of the year, attackman of the year and defenseman of the year. Uh, and they went undefeated that, that season. Um, but that wasn't like a, you know, it was just that season, you know, they didn't continue that for years. Um, and then after that, it really was just who got hot at the right time. I think my sophomore year Hopkins won, but, you know, we played them in the first round and, and went into overtime and, uh, you know, we did, it wasn't like they were clearly the best team is just, they got hot at the right time. And then later on, I think Syracuse won the, the next two and it was kind of a similar deal. They won back to back, but they, they weren't, you know, head and shoulders that much better. Maybe the, my junior year, um, Syracuse was kind of in that realm where they just had a lot of talent and skill on the field, but those would probably be the two Virginia, my freshman year and Syracuse, my, my junior. Adder, what do you make of uh, the, the Terps' dominance? Pretty unbelievable. It's both sides of the ball, too, and they, they kind of have so much depth. You know, it's weird. We just got done talking to Dino because we got them on Thursday, and, you know, when you talk about depth of talent, there are teams out there that I think have a lot of depth of talent, but it's the way that they've come together at Maryland and the way, like, the Donvilles of the world have come in and just fit in so seamlessly into what was already an unbelievable team last year. So it makes them that much better. On the flip side, you look at Duke and you say, even though they were really good last year, and they still might make the tournament this year, they just haven't had the same chemistry. You know, Sowers came in last year, and it was supposed to be a super team, and they were going to be unbeatable, and they just never had that chemistry on the field, and they don't even have it really this year either, even though they have a lot of veteran players. And I feel like that's the big thing that makes Maryland so good is that they brought so many good players back from last year. And you add a guy like Donville and, you know, some guys like that are, that were big time producing midfielders have to slide down and play D midi because they've got so much, not only talent, but talent that's working together and playing together so well. I mean, maybe that's a testament to Tillman and to, uh, you know, some of the assistants up there in the fact that they're able to get those, those players to play so well together. I'm heading to Michigan. It's my first time there. Any, uh, have you guys called a lacrosse game at Michigan in, in the new facility? Yeah, I have. It's good. It's, yeah, it's a I nice have, facility. I have as and well. I have as good, well. Good place yeah. to call a game, isn't it, Cart? Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, you, you definitely got to spend some time, get a lift in there as well, Q. Their, their weight room, yeah. their locker room, it's, it's, it's done at, at an elite level in terms of just the way they prioritize lacrosse and some other sports. Um, in that section of campus. It's kind of in its own little, little pod. One thing I'll say about Maryland or a couple things you're right up in lax all stars weekly poll. I thought was, was awesome. I mean, I oh, should just read, I should just read it right now. Well, yeah. I got a lot of help, honestly, texting back and forth with you guys and, and, and you guys were, well, were you put it together. So you, you produced it. I'm going to give you the credit. It was, it was exceptional and you broke it down and you, you brought up, up a lot of things. And, and you and I have talked uh, offline texting. We, we both agree Maryland is, is the best team far and away right now, but we, we both believe that we're not in a position to crown them. Like we, history has, 
has told us not to crown this team. Lacrosse is bizarre based on the standpoint, like once you get into, once you get into conference play, you play once a week. Okay. And then later in the season, the biggest weekend in the sport, you have a 48 hour turnaround to play the biggest game of the year in the national championship in Maryland. I am confident. I would put, I would put a lot of, of, of my word down that, that Maryland wins their semifinal game on a week's preparation. They're going to be really, really tough to beat. But if you're a two or a three seed, the difference between being a three and a four this year is massive because if you're a three, you will play the two seed and not have to deal with Maryland on a week's rest. And you will get them potentially on 48 hours rest. If you're a four seed, you're staring at Maryland in the semis. Good luck. I, I just think that this is a team with a week preparation will, will not lose, but I'm not confident to say, and we've seen it. How many times has Maryland lost that final game in Tillman's in Tillman's time? Yeah. Five, five, six. Yeah. He's been there 14 years. They played in that championship game. They've won one. That's not to say that he's not the best coach in the game. He's unbelievable. Like what he does from an attention to detail perspective, the way that he built the culture around that program, this guy is unreal. But you take out a lot of a coach's strengths when you play a really tough game on a Saturday and you turn around for a team that you have to prep for and play in less than 48 hours, right? That's, that's the great neutralizer for Maryland this year is, is playing 48 hours later. It's, it's not necessarily who they're playing. It's, it's how they're doing that. Yeah, and you think about, too, who's going to be in those positions? Obviously, there's a lot of lacrosse still to be played, and the Ivy's got to sort itself out. But I think when they're healthy and they're playing well, Virginia is probably that, that one notch behind Maryland, even though that game didn't go their way. We kind of saw there was a big difference between the two teams. And Georgetown, too. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, the yeah. Ivy's kind of trying to settle itself out, but you may be looking at Georgetown and Virginia two and three or the winner of that game, maybe playing yes, yes. Maryland. And, and Cotter, they handed Maryland, Virginia did, 15 extra possessions right? Yeah. 15 extra possessions. They still scored 12 goals. Um, I don't think the gap is as big between those two teams. When Virginia's playing at their best, I just don't think the gap is, is what people think it is. You think yeah. Georgetown, Q, how about Georgetown, I, Georgetown I think Georgetown has the defense that, that, that could potentially maybe hang with Maryland a little. Princeton has the offense that, that can score, but Princeton's defense would, would, would get, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a pretty thing the second time they play them. Yale is on the improve. The one thing about Virginia, I'll mention you guys, like if Virginia loses to Duke this week, they're RPI. They're at five right now. There's a chance that they're going to drop to seven or eight, and then they play Quinnipiac and Lafayette. If Virginia doesn't finish strong, they might not be a top eight seed. This game is massive for Virginia. This is this is this is playing potentially for like for like a two or a three seed, right? This yeah, is a yeah. massive it'll keep, game. It'll keep in the top four at least. They they need this one. And, and, and then, you know, obviously they, they need the Ivy League to shake itself down in Georgetown. But uh, if they lose this game, man, can you imagine unseated Virginia with this talent? Oh, no. And if they do win, I, I see them probably, if, if everything held serve, they'll, they'll be between, you know, if Georgetown holds and continues to win. I see Virginia anywhere from three to five, right? That's where you see them if they win? Yeah, and the four or five slot is not exactly ideal uh, no. either. You, know, no, you want to be on the bottom half of the bracket. 
No, Maryland is Maryland is is unbelievable in how selfless they are. You know, you were asking those guys about teams they played against. I saw Princeton my junior year um, in 1996. It was the first of their three title teams, and Hess, Massey, and Hubbard. Like you just got the feeling that their body language too, and the rest of that offense, they didn't care who scored goals. I, I feel like that's the way with Maryland, right? And then at the end of the day, everyone eats when you when you really buy into that. I mean, there are games where like Donville disappears and DeMeo doesn't score. And, you know, Danny Maltz isn't even getting playing time right now. That's how deep and good they are right now. I mean, I just, I just, I just feel like the, the ball moves at such a quick rate that it, it's really hard to key in on anyone. Hey, Q, go ahead, Hawk. They've got seven guys with 20-plus points, and Daniel Maltz is down at number eight. He's not even one of those guys. What did he have Who, last year? Pull up last year's stats. Yeah, what did he call he up last year, stand by. Oh, no, they're, they're a better team now. With Donville in the lineup, uh, Owen Murphy, and, and they got, obviously, uh, Bubba Fairman now playing defensive midfield and scoring Owen transit. Murphy is skilled, man. How, how did he end up leaving Hopkins? Keegan, Keegan Kahn. Like they're they're just a better team. Their defense is better. Zapatello's come a long way. Weirman's a better Fogo right now. That is one concern I have. They're awful reliant on one Fogo, and it seems like that's a position that lends itself to injury. Yeah, yeah Maltz had fifty points last year, twelve this year, and it's not it's not a knock on him. It's it's no, you know, a no. compliment to the offense. Yeah, so you know it's going to be fascinating uh, to to watch how the Ivy League plays out. Can Maryland continue to roll? Obviously, all signs say yes. Uh, and and then yep. what happens in the what happens in the ACC? Yeah, I mean that this game's as big a game for Duke as it is for Virginia on Thursday because if they lose this game, you know they'll have to win out, and then even then they're on the bubble because you know you look at the ACC. It's weird the ACC wants Ohio State to win for RPI, but Ohio State's going to be on the bubble too along with them. And and you know if. If Duke loses this game, then they they beat North Carolina. You know, they may have to beat Notre Dame, and then Notre Dame has to win the rest of their games other than that Duke game in order for both of those teams to get in. And that might be the best-case scenario for the ACC. Yeah, I, I think I think Ohio State has some really, really good wins. Like They do. If, if it comes down to, like, you know, the Dukes and the, the North Carolinas of the world – you know, for that last spot, you look at Ohio State's at a conference wins. They beat Harvard, who's sitting what at the RPI right now? Nine. What's Harvard? Harvard's nine? at nine. Yeah. Yeah. So at they right beat here. Harvard. They beat North Carolina. They beat Notre Dame. They have real at a conference right. wins. Well, if they're both, if they're all in the bubble, how do you take Notre Dame and North Carolina over Ohio State when they won head to head? All all things being equal among those teams. Yeah, I, I I think Ohio State's going to be fine. The, the bizarro thing about the RPI, and, and I'm becoming less and less an RPI fan, is you got Denver at 11 right now. They're ahead of three teams that they lost to. Okay, you got ja you got Jacksonville at 19. They're behind three teams they beat. What what is the system that we're using? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, it I'm is, with you. It is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like I I, I I don't know. I don't know. The ACC the ACC needs Brown and Harvard to go away. Like they and Harvard's schedule coming up is absolutely ridiculous. Now they play all the meat in in the in the uh, Ivy coming up, but they need the, they need the Ivy to be stuck on four teams. So if they take three of the at larges, say the Big Ten has two of the at larges, that leaves three remaining for the ACC, and I think that's their best case scenario, don't you? 
Yeah, you know, the other thing about the Ivy that's interesting, Penn is probably outside of like Yale, and I know Cornell was doing a, a fantastic job with with only one loss, and I, I, I think that coaching staff is really getting the most out of out of that team. They have talent for sure, but I, I feel like eyeball tests when you watch Penn and you watch Yale, I, I just feel like those teams – really really check all the boxes in terms of like bigger faster stronger guys um and Penn Penn might have trouble making the Ivy tournament if if Brown beats Cornell right and Brown beats Dartmouth Brown should beat Dartmouth Brown beats Cornell you know they're they're going to be three and three in in the league and and Penn could be three and three if they win their next two games and they have the head-to-head over Penn yeah Penn could not make the Ivy tournament. So if Penn doesn't make the Ivy tournament, Quint, can you see a scenario, Penn not making the Ivy tournament, but making the NCAA tournament? It would be rough. They're, they're at eight right now in the RPI, which means they dropped to, to, to being on the bubble. The good news is they beat Duke, but that win may not hold up. Yeah. So, so, but that, that's a team though. Like you wouldn't want to play that team, right? Like, like early. No, in they're very, they're, they're, they're talented. You know, it's interesting how some teams and then Ryan, you, you know, you played like, how some teams can peak a little earlier than others and how others you, you hit a setback and then you, you can kind of find a second wind and burst through like the trajectory of your season. It's different for everybody. No, absolutely. I mean, Hey, we talk about Duke with it all the time and how they've always turned it on in the second half of the season, but different teams peak at different times. And it's about, you know, when are you going to peak? Are you going to peak right as you're going into the playoffs, right? As you're going into your conference tournaments, the year after I graduated was the year, the first year we went to the final four since, or, you know, championship weekend since 2001, that was like the worst regular season we had had in years. They barely made the tournament. So, you know, it it all depends on these, you know, these next three weeks are going to be really, really interesting. Well, thank you guys. Ryan Hoff. Good to see you. I hope to see more of you in May. I'm coming up to Bristol, uh, coming up to Bristol Thursday. You won't be there though. Cotter, good luck with the doubleheader and then yep. the shoulder surgery and, and finding you, the man. workout. Uh, we need we need you to find a, a healthy routine for May as well. Maybe he Cart- should go like he should go like vegan, just flush himself out and go <laughs> vegan for the month. Get skinny. I'll get really skinny by the time football season starts. Right? No way. Kark, wish me luck. I'm with niche. Oh, good luck. Good luck. You'll do great. I miss all you guys. I love lacrosse season. It's, it's, it's the happiest time of the year for me. And, and a lot of the reason behind that statement is all of you. So just keep being yourselves. Don't change, right? Don't quit. Love you guys. You too. All right, see you later. Guys. Thank you. Well, here we go with a really special guest, uh, a guy I've known since uh, the late 80s. He is uh, kind of known as the voice of lacrosse uh, through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. But if you know Lee Felsmo, he did a lot more than that. Not only was he an announcer, he produced shows, he packaged shows. Toyota Lacrosse Weekly ran for 20 years. Uh, and, and Leaf was instrumental in the growth and promotion of lacrosse for decades. Uh, two weeks ago, he was inducted into the Baltimore chapter of the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame, which is a step one to getting Leaf in the National Hall of Fame, which uh, hopefully will happen here shortly. Uh, and, and we're really pleased to, to be joined by Leaf. Uh, Leafer, I, I got to ask you. Uh, the Hall of Fame, what, what was your takeaway? I, I thought the response was uh, amazing from players, from coaches, from people who have been involved in the sport, uh, all, all seeing your contribution and then, and then kind of 
being revealed at, at how actually deep it was beyond just being an announcer. Well, thanks for that intro, Q, and you were a great presenter for that Hall of Fame and do appreciate everything you did that night. And it was rewarding. Uh, you know, you expect it to be nice and it was nice, but when you have that many levels of people just thanking you for what you did, that's kind of what we all want, isn't it? You know, I covered you players, uh, a great honor, and I was always proud to be the voice of lacrosse. But when you have players and family saying, you, you know, you were the, basically the soundtrack of me getting ready to play the game I wanted to play, and then when they can pop up with a replay and say, this was my biggest moment ever, and you nailed it, you know, and you actually you were part of that. Uh, with Brian Carcaterra, who, who specifically said uh, those words. But it was a nice, great night, uh, very well received. Uh, didn't try not to expect too much, but people had basically two comments. One was, you know, I didn't know. And you, you did a good job of letting know some of the backstory because you and I, I say you because you were next to me for many, many years. I was about 10 years into it when we joined forces and it was, it was great, but, uh, you, you quite, you know, they never knew the background and uh, you hinted at that a minute ago. And there was so much more than just what they saw because we were part of the start of ESPN2, start of the Pro Leagues, uh, the US Canada series. I mean, there were so many things that happened in those 25 years it was exciting, but very rewarding night because we all play or are involved to do something at a high level. I wanted to be the best like you wanted to be the best i wanted to go to the championship like you wanted to go to the championship i wanted to leave some kind of legacy and when your peers your friends from where you grew up give you a little tip of the hat that's that's very special so it was a great night you got the opportunity to start broadcasting lacrosse through a man by the name of joe harlan uh back at a time where lacrosse wasn't on tv very very much how did that spiral into becoming the lead analyst for the sport uh, well, I was in production at the time. I played lacrosse, a scholarship player, went to Bowling Green, program lasted 15 years, made special friends there. And we, we played a pretty good schedule. My last game was against Towson and against Greeby and D'Arcangelo, a, a very, one of our best teams ever. So we played a, a fairly decent level of lacrosse. I came back to play club. I didn't play lacrosse for five years. I was in my young 30s, had just finished a movie. I was an after SAG member. I was an actor and doing all kinds of commercial production and film. Just finished a film, co-wrote it, co-produced it. Um, so my background in production was big. And then Joe Harlan, who you mentioned from Hopkins, started, he did the first championships on ESPN2, which was a, just a big, little bitty you know, sports network that was starting out at the time worked out of these small production trucks and Joe wanted to do games and he asked for tapes and I sent him my tape and my tape was by far the best one he got because I was in the business. And of course I played the cross. So he asked me to join him. I did. Uh, I went back and played because I hadn't played in five or six years. So I went and played in Vail in the open division. I went back and played in a club league uh, just to get back into the game. And I was like 31, um, but that helped. So we did double headers small truck, uh, and that grew into a bigger championship series. He had actually, he wanted me to do the championships very quickly after that. He was a lawyer and just wanted to control the production and he enjoyed that. So I had an opportunity through him to go ahead and, and just segue right into the announcing part. Did color for the first 10 years. First one was with Bob Lee at Delaware 
And then shortly after that, they CBS got the rights to the championships and I did those They were abbreviated one hour shows for five years. Uh, and in that process, uh, production was a big part of it because people didn't do lacrosse. So they said, Leif, what do we do? Uh, how do we do it? Where are the cameras? What should we do? What's the storyline? Et cetera, et cetera. And it was a growing industry and lacrosse benefited from that. So I was there with that growth, got the championships, did the CBS gig, and then CBS sold, redid the whole contract and ESPN bought the rights back. That was all about money. CBS didn't want lacrosse. They didn't only wanted basketball. So they redid the contracts of giving the NCAA a billion dollars. They gave them $2 billion or whatever. And they said, take the other sports back. ESPN took nine of them, I think. And the championship programs kept developing in that they trusted me and I enjoyed the work as a color analyst. And then about eight, 10 years into that, I knew I wanted to do more work broadcast-wise, so I pushed myself over. I helped, I mean, I went over to the play-by-play -play chair because I didn't want to just be color in lacrosse. So uh, around that time, maybe a couple of years before that, and then, matter of fact, one of my interviews, I think, was with you in your 87 championship. Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. You were a young freshman uh, pushed into the starting role, and you win the national championship, and I interview on the sideline. And then after that, when you got into production, Bill Fitz, our producer, had you do a demo tape when we were doing indoor lacrosse. And I had been doing color and play-by-play. -play, and he said, he, he was experimenting. He said, Lee, you, you can do both, just go do both. And then we'll put Christy Lee on one bench and we'll put Quint on the other bench. And of course, then you and I grew from that into a good tandem. And we did a lot of games. The NCAAs grew, the pro league started, uh, I, at the time, would produce club games because I wanted to show the best of the game as much as possible. I did the Bale lacrosse shootout. Anytime you could do a great game, we worked to get that game on TV through a network of uh, regional sports regionals. I told that story. Stop me from talking too long on your question here. But sports regionals, I, I said that night, when I started in 84, the government deregulated broadcast. So it went from like five networks over the next 10 years to like a hundred. And the big thing was sports regionals, home team sports, Nesson, Madison Square Garden was already there, Prism, uh, Sunshine Network, Home Sports Entertainment in Houston, Rocky Mountain Sports, uh, Prime in LA. And we worked hard to push lacrosse down their throats to get on those stations. Uh, so, wanting to make lacrosse a bigger part of my life while it was playing, I just pushed for every league to get as much exposure and then hopefully became a part of it. Uh, and that's the story. Yeah, uh, NCAA championships question. Uh, any, any strong memories from those early years, uh, mid to late 80s or early 90s that, that stand yeah. out or, or funny, funny stories? I mean, yeah, well, so you, were, you were at like watching some of those games and, and then taking a train up to New York to voice them afterwards. Is that accurate? Well, and the CBS years were abbreviated things. CBS goes and gets the basketball contract and NCAA said to them, you have to do all 27 sports. So it went from a full game production to an hour show on CBS. So we would go shoot and they didn't quite know how to do that. So they were kind of experimenting. Uh, we would shoot the whole game. Initially, like uh, it was James Brown and I for the first two years, 
we would sit up there and, and they thought we would go ahead and voice the game and then they would pick out pieces of that that would work. But it didn't work because James Brown, as great as he is, he just didn't know the vernacular. He didn't know the flow. and He, he couldn't do that. So we just taped it and we watched it together. We talked about it and then they would cut the show to an hour and then I would go up to New York with James. And I got to tell you, we've, you know, we did a lot of different ways and a lot of different formulas for the game, but that was maybe the hardest because those producers would nitpick every single word you said. So you're trying to get the flow, you look at the highlights and then he says, well, would you really say that? Do you really want to say that? You know, they would dissect each word. So it became very unnatural to me, uh, but we would get through it. And James would just say, leave, just carry me. He didn't know. And he was a great guy and a really a good professional. And uh, we got through it, but it was a different guy almost every year. So James Brown for two years, you'd think you got something going. And then it was Jim, Jim Gray. And then it was uh, Mike Joy from the NASCAR. And, and then it was uh, maybe John Neighbors, who was an Olympic swimmer, who didn't know the game either. So it was always a little bit of struggle, different people coming in, not quite knowing. And we would push out the hour show. And of course, they turned out well because uh, CBS had a lot of money. The major indoor lacrosse league uh, was in existence in the early '90s when the, the Gate Brothers got out of Syracuse. They were playing. It was a I don't know a six-team league owned by uh, a handful of, of owners, basically one ownership group. But they caught a break when that package uh, was picked up by ESPN Two at ESPN Two's really launching site. And there were some really talented people involved with those shows. Bill Fitz, as you mentioned, produced uh, uh, the first Super Bowl. The, 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 sh- the game producer was a guy by the name of Paul Pistol out of the Indy. And those shows were cutting edge. What, what, was, what was the takeaway, Leaf, of, of working in, in Philly and Buffalo and Boston, uh, covering the indoor league back then? Well, the beauty of that particular series was that we flew the same people to each game. People have to realize, or they don't realize probably, but football, baseball, Formulamatic, you know, there's a formula to all those broadcasts, but the beauty of those broadcasts is that they fly the same crew, you know, CBS will do the same crew game to game to game. The technicians get to know exactly what they're doing. They work very fluidly in the truck. The broadcast team is the same every week. They work very fluidly out on the field and you really get to be good because you hone your craft together like any team would, like the team on the field does. Lacrosse never had that. We had to go into, you know, mostly lacrosse was a one day setup in other words, if I had to hire the truck, you hired 18 guys and you go that morning. It has to be a 10 hour day because you can't afford overtime. You meet them at eight in the morning. They set up for three hours. They have a lunch break. They come back. You talk about camera angles and what they're supposed to do. You, there are, the director normally has done it before. The producer may be new to it, but audio guys are new. Anyway, and then you put together a show and you walk out of there with tapes and you have to make a show out of it. And hopefully it's cut well and done well. Um, but the ESPN years were special because we had Paul Pistol, a young producer that you met, mentioned, anxious to make his mark with ESPN. And Bill Fitz over top, who was so experienced and an next player at Yale. And we flew a Jimmy Jib guy, because that was going to be a new twist of ours. So the same guy went to every game. The same director went to every game. You and I went to every game, of course. Uh, Paul got to know that and he would bring in other people, maybe one or two camera guys that he wanted to have consistency with. So we got to be really, really slick and 
measured as a team with pulling that sport out. And at the same time, Bill Fitz was saying, the ESPN directive was experiment, do anything different and it just do things different. So <laughs> I laughed because Bill Fitz came up with some crazy ideas and somebody said, ah, I just can't do that, Bill. He said, I want you to run on the field and shoot a goal and score before we start the game. And then we'll have a spotlight. And I said, well, that's probably a little much for me, but um, we would announce, he said one time he'd say, okay, announce out of the penalty box. So this game just announced from the penalty box. And we did that. Um, crazy experimentation. As you know, we mic'd everybody. Back, people might not know, but back then they didn't mic everybody in sports the way we did then. We mic'd people into the locker room. It got embarrassing sometimes. We mic'd people on the bench. We mic'd players all over the place. So the experimentation and the consistency of a crew that traveled together made those tapes pretty darn good. And I think they stand up well now. When you look back at them, that was really good production. They do, actually. If fans want to Google them, just Google uh, M-I-L-L lacrosse 1995 championship uh, and you get to watch the gates and listen to Leaf. Uh, that was it was that was super fun, too. Leaf, when did the uh, Toyota Lacrosse Weekly, when did the idea for a weekly lacrosse highlight show, uh, when did you come up with that? When did it become a reality? How'd you pull that off? All along the way, I started with the World Games in like 82 with Joe Harlan did those and I did the uh, color announcing. And I was, I was struck along the way. I never felt like I was a total insider with the game. I wasn't you know, a prep school guy. I was from Towson High School, basically. I played one year or seven. But my viewpoint was to make the game more digestible to sports fans. So I wasn't invested in the ownership of it. Lacrosse is funny because it's a great family environment. You have friends forever. But at the same time, that hurts the game from my perspective because everybody's so possessive of the game. They don't, they kind of like nobody else plays it. They kind of like it's their game. They kind of like it's the legacy game of their family. And I was looking for something that would transcend where it was to get where I wanted it to be, which was better for sponsors. I wanted football people to like it. I wanted basketball fans to like it. So I was constantly looking to make the game product better. And they were, and the people house around were constantly happy if they played and 2,000 people, 3,000 people, whatever. And for instance, in those World Games in 82, it was a sellout at Hopkins. They were so proud of it. And I was sitting there saying, I was not satisfied because I said, we should have done this down at the Inner Harbor. We should have taken this great event in this sport and, and just then it, maybe a Memorial Stadium, just play it in front of somebody else, at least one of the games or one night of the games. So from that, and during that, I would like Frank Gifford would come in for those particular games. He was there. I would walk him through. If they look at the game, they're confused. I walk him through the truck. And this was a consistent thing with whether it's Johnny Unitas with his kids playing, Frank Gifford, James Brown when he started. If I walk him through the truck and show him a highlight, rather than confused, they would go, wow. So early on, I knew the highlight was critical to draw people's attention that didn't know the game and were confused by the game process. They didn't have time to learn it, but the replays really captured their attention and they were showing great athleticism and it was dramatic. So quickly, I wanted to get a highlight show up that did just that, show more lacrosse, show highlights, the best parts of it, slow it down at times, make them really be pulled into the athleticism. So 
I just went for Toyota Lacrosse Weekly. It wasn't Toyota initially. SCX was the first sponsor. Jimmy Almanum was, was the first sponsor. It would have been a big ticket for him. But TV's expensive, so I wasn't sure I could afford to do it. It, it really, you couldn't really do it for less than 8,000 back then a week. So we started at Home Team Sports, it's a typical three camera shoot with seven people in a studio. Uh, had support inside the game, but I had to find sponsors outside the game. And I think right away it was well received because we didn't have anything like that. And then I started building the distribution up along the regionals to about 40 million homes. And I would just handle all that. Um, and it built from that, uh, Toyota took it over like in the third year. They stuck with me all the way through to, you know, the late, like 2010 or whenever we stopped doing it. But they were a great sponsor. People, from a business standpoint, people would be shocked. I tell them all the time that, you know, I never had a contract. I never had a contract more than one year. I never had a written contract with Toyota. And I got 20 years at them because if it worked, we kept going. The NCAs, I never had a multi-year contract. They would call me three months before if I was the guy they wanted and ask me to do it. So I had very little to count on in revenue stream-wise on lacrosse. That's why I had to keep fighting to put more games on because I had to control it to even have a shot to make a living at it. And it worked out pretty well over the years. But the highlight show I thought was great because it did a lot of things. It showed the game in ways people could really be attracted to it by watching a highlight. But also it showed everybody, because back then it was basically Hopkins, Syracuse, Virginia. So I was able to show Division Three Salisbury, all of a sudden. People were going, oh, my God, look at this. These guys are pretty good. And not only that, they've won the championship six years in a row. I would show RIT up in upstate New York and other divisions of the game. And then the pro league started. It was easy to put them in there because we had the tapes and we would show that. And we developed stringers all around the country. And I think it was uh, taxing as it was because we had to get tapes in and we didn't have a studio. And we got kicked from one studio to the next. But we would basically get the games in house by Monday, if possible. Channel two was a big part of that. You were a part of the channel two crew, but I would go up with Scott and, uh, you know, every Sunday and I would pick up tapes and I would drop tapes off. I would use my tapes, I would use his tapes. And uh, the show just kept going. Then uh, basically the only way to keep it going was uh, we got into a non-linear situation uh, ESPN zone. I did it down there for a while. We did it at the U S lacrosse foundation for a while because Comcast came in and did news and kicked us out of there. So there was challenges along the way, but the, that consistent show stayed with the same look. We would freshen up the look and it did real well. Uh, and I think was a great tool to bring in new people. And, and a lot of people, especially the division two guys, guys who weren't, you know, if they're not in the championship every year, really appreciate the fact that they had an avenue to get some of their program on TV. Yeah. And I'll also add to that women's, you know, we, we had women's packages in basically every single show that ever aired uh, high quality women's, which I thought was uh, big for, for their game. It's a, a, a beautiful, a beautiful game to watch. And you, that, that the, the highlight uh, mentality leaf that kind of exists now on social media, you know, you, you were definitely ahead of the trend. Like, cut out all the fat and show me the really good stuff, slow it down, zoom it in, shoot it really tight. And it's, it's, it's wow moments. Uh, with that in mind, how do you, you know, we're, we're going through an expansion period right now where there's a lot more lacrosse on TV. A lot of schools are producing their own games. Uh, 
on the cheap, a lot of networks are involved and the quality of production has not ramped up to where we know it, it needs to be to, to, to get new fans. You, you can't shoot it like an all 22 in football and expect people to gravitate to this game. What's important. And, and, and like, let's say a pro the premier lacrosse league coming this summer, what, how, how do you think the game should be televised? You, you have a ton of experience in this realm, but what's the best way to televise lacrosse? Well, that's, that's a loaded question. Um, I don't watch it enough now because, you know, I, I got out of the game. It was funny. When, when I would get success developing a league, and I wasn't the guy developing a league, but with, with whatever I was doing, if it became successful, take the Tuaraton. Tuaraton, I started that. I pushed that. I promoted it every week. I did the production for every single person who came up in the finals of the actual presentation, the live presentation. I built the live packages because I had footage. And I actually directed it from the National Geographic Auditorium when they did it there. But as soon as the network picked it up, like CSTV, I was done because they use their own people and they can do it cheaper. And I'm, I said, okay. And they say, do you want to do this? I said, ah, no, I'd rather do the full thing. I couldn't make enough just being an announcer. So kind of, it would get successful then I would kind of be replaced by the network. And that's good because it was growing and it was being successful. The, the leagues that, what happens now with this opportunity of everybody showing lacrosse, you're right, it's not funded. I'm here, I hear more than I see. I hear from, you know, you've broken it down for me. My son breaks it down and talks about it. But exposure isn't the vehicle for making the game exciting. As you mentioned, when you shoot like the all 22, you cannot get invested in the game. But everybody wants content. So content, we're content driven because we have all these different outlets digitally. And you don't have the money to do it right. So you just do it. And you know, the 14 year old kids that are doing skateboarders or people jumping off cliffs with, you know, no clothes on or something, they, they get plenty of exposure and they can do it at home. But if you're going to cover a game and just, just to say you're going to cover the game, that really doesn't do much to bring people into the game because you do need close ups, you do need multiple cameras, you do need storylines, you do need good audio. And that doesn't happen when you don't have the budget and you think. The only objective is content. We need more content. And that's what drives it now, content. So for Paul Rabel, I don't, I, I talked to him a little bit at the Hall of Fame. Uh, and it was great that he was in that class with me. I really was uh, honored by that. It was neat to have him and Ben Rubior who played with my son, Nick at Virginia. So it was great to have those two guys, but he's, Paul's got some of the same challenges and my fear is that he'll think just because he has this contract that it's, that, that it's there, sports there, because I would say, no, it's not there. My barometer would be, does Tony Kornheiser respect? Do the sports network guys respect it? Are they still talking about, oh, that's just lacrosse? You know, do you see a stick in a movie once in a while and you think you've made it? Not really. You need to get the game to a point where somebody watching it who loves action sports, loves the action in sports, appreciates lacrosse. So Paul has a chance to do that. And he's done a great job in doing experimental things. He's changing rules, he's shortening things, he's doing that. Um, but it's a big challenge. And my feeling is that you got a four year window, if that's his contract. And then if he doesn't make, they have to make an impression 
of something different. And if they don't, it'll be just back where it was and they'll go, oh, that's just lacrosse. People say, oh, that's just lacrosse. It's gotta be better than that. And I think you, you asked initially, Q, what do I remember about the NCAA stuff? And I think you'll agree, my biggest memories right away were the Princeton teams because that's when we started getting incredible drama. And, you know, Andy Moe and these guys, and it was always, it's almost always the Brian Carcaterra tariff, the highlight he sent me, but that really just shows him in 15 seconds, the greatness of what he did as a player. And as a, and then at the moment, in that moment, my point is almost all these big moments are transition moments. They're guys running the full length of the field, doing athletic things and a huge wow moment at the end. And what, from my perspective, what has the game done in the last 15 years? Well, they've basically eliminated the transition. They've said, okay, you get across the midfield. This is something I've thought about all the time because they would get across midfield and the coaches stop the game. Ah, substitute. Blah, 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 blah. They'll say in the hot, in the huddles, one of the, uh, one of the articles that got me in trouble was when I talked about one of the best games, it was Hopkins, Virginia. It was end to end and we would go into the huddles and each coach would say, no transition. Don't let them have transition. You gotta stop the transition. They knew it was the most deadly weapon on the other side. Yet, every time they had transition, they'd call a timeout. It was just mind boggling. And then the game ended in the third overtime when they ran out of timeouts and the players had a dramatic play and it was great and the crowd went nuts and they won the game. So here again, I think the sport has to get out of its own way and quit being possessive of it. Think about it as a product and what makes the product better. People don't pay money to watch coaches coach. They just don't. So let the players have the game. What's the greatest thing about field lacrosse? The other biggest thing that damaged my reputation to the coaches was that I wrote an article said the death of field lacrosse. Because when they started mandating almost, you bring a Canadian guy in on the offensive side. Everybody had to have a Canadian guy. And they stopped transition almost every time. You basically had box lacrosse on both ends. So where's the field game? Where's the advantage of the American player, the gazelle American athlete, the beautiful end-to-end -end guy? It's, it's kind of gone. So if Paul can bring that back, and I don't, he I don't think he needs to shorten the field. I'd like to see the whole field and let the guys use their athletic ability. The long stick is another question. You know, I've been on that forever, and I still think it's a factor, but pinch stick, when Warrior pinched the stick, challenged the NCAA with the lawsuit, it just changed the game. And now cross checks are allowed, people get beat up. But what sport do you watch that lets you hit somebody with a stick? I, there's nothing athletic about that. There's nothing manly about that. There's nothing fair about that. And with, without reason, when nobody, nobody planned this, but just through a series of things, lacrosse is allowing you to hit a guy with a stick. So I don't think it helps the game. It doesn't help the fluidity. It doesn't help the athleticism. It doesn't impress anybody. It's not a manly thing. It's, I guess it's a manly thing to take a hit. But um, Those are some of the things that bug me. But I think the pro league, Paul Rabel, I'll give him all the credit in the world. He's done a great job, make it a great impact. And he has a chance to make a true change so that people would look at the sport differently, his sport differently the pro lacrosse league. They should be distinctive in every way, not just the uniforms, but the way they play the game, the way it 
is experienced by the fan. That is the key to what he's got in front of him. The evolution, last thing here, the, the evolution is, it's fascinating to look at. You mentioned, you know, uh, the offset head and, and, and pocket depth and, and uh, ball retention. You, you've always put the game first. You, you, you've, uh, that's the number one thing on your agenda. Uh, I, I can truthfully and honestly say all along, you just want an exciting, compelling, great game. Uh, 20 years ahead of the curve, you, you were asking for a shot clock. We've, we've finally got one. And, and, and it, it has been a, a major upgrade to, to the tempo of the game, to the action. At least we're guaranteed some resolution every 60 or, eight, or 80 seconds. Uh, and, and, and so I think that's been a, been a huge positive. But, you know, th that putting the game, why, as you just kind of went off, why was it so important for you always to put the game first? Well, I was trying to make a living out of it and I had to have sponsors and sponsors had to have an audience and an audience has to watch like watching a game. And that wasn't true. Historically, the people that watch lacrosse are the mothers, the brothers, the sisters, the girlfriend. That's it. And usually back when I played, if when you got out of college, you, you rarely followed club because there, there were no pro leagues. People invest so much in their kids now, I really believe that's what drives the pro leagues. They don't want their kid to stop playing because they, they want to have value in what he did and they love the game. That lacrosse people love the game. But that can only go so far. We had to have more numbers. You know, when we did the championships for the NCAA, we had to be off by one o'clock. Now, why do we have to be off by one o'clock? Because women's softball was coming up next and they outdrew lacrosse by two to one. People would rather watch women play softball than lacrosse. So to me, it was always to make the product better. The product had to be better. And what was the product? That was the game. It wasn't the way you play the game, the coaching of the game, or putting more people in the game, or expanding rosters to 45. The international game is still a little, is definitely better. And it has hints of what the game used to be because you have 21 players on a roster and you go end to end constantly because you, can, you don't have 52 guys to put in. You got 21. And that's a beautiful thing. Maybe it's changed since Nick played, but 21 was the number then. So the product is the game. If it makes more money, if more sponsors come in, and I can tell you after 25 years of trying to get sponsors, if they weren't lacrosse sponsors, I had to just cross my fingers. And most of them did not stay because nobody was ringing the cash register. So the game has expanded in a player, uh, respect or more kids playing and there are more kids buying lacrosse stuff, but are they selling Jeeps? Are they selling Taco Bell? Coca-Cola. Yeah. yeah. That's the key. The key is to get more eyes watching, more people consuming sponsors, products. And then and people might be turned off by that saying, well, that's commercialism. And blah, blah, blah. Well, the pro lacrosse league is commercial. And again, I give them, I tip my hat to them, but they need people to watch it for them to make money. For ESPN to continue with enthusiasm, they need audience. And audience needs a product that they can enjoy. Leif Elsmo, one of a kind, uh, one, one of the greatest uh, that I, I've ever been associated with. Leif, th thanks for the time. Congratulations again on the Hall of Fame. Good luck to your move, uh, heading down to the sun. And uh, best best to your family. Uh, appreciate the time and and, uh, and stay in touch. You you have so much uh, experience 
and 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 stories to to share. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, Quint, I hope one day I get to tell everybody how much I admire what you've done. You've done great work, and uh, that's why ESPN loves you. A great way you you tell, as they said way back when, Bill Fitz said to me, Quint makes the complicated easy to understand, and that's your real uh, favorite or the most you know the most successful thing you do in your air. You do a lot of great things and a great ambassador of the game. And thank you very much. Thank you, Leaf. You'll have to tell that to my daughter. <laughs>